stay here. Good afternoon, and after a short delay for technical difficulties, uh, we're ready to begin. Uh, this is the first uh, seminar for the semester, for the Serious Security Seminar. And I'm, I'm really thrilled uh, to introduce our speaker today, someone I've known for a number of years and worked with on a number of projects, as well as followed things she's done. Um, if, there's an incredible biography uh, on the webpage if you want to look at the, at the background. But uh, Jenny uh, Rezmerski has been uh, working to help people for her whole career in a number of different guises. Uh, and uh, as a professor and as an administrator at the University of Michigan, she's been particularly interested in issues of uh, policy having to do with privacy, security, and appropriate use of computing resources. And that's led to a number of very uh, highly cited projects. She's going to tell us a little bit about some of those results today. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Jenny Rezmerski. Uh, good afternoon. I know it's uh, late in the day, and I hope I can keep you interested in this period of time. I want to talk to you about the latest research that I've just completed, and uh, it has to do with finding factors related to the cause of computer-related incidents. I am typically uh, more active and closer to my audience, so I will tend to want to get away from this desk and out there close to you because that's the way I teach. But I am sort of locked here for this presentation. So let's uh, informalize the whole thing a little bit by giving you opportunities to ask questions as we go through, as I go through the presentation. And I'll also ask you some questions as well. Um, the first question that you may want to ask is what is a computer-related incident? Uh, because that's, in fact, what, uh, what this whole research is about. Let me give you a little background on me for a second. I'm a psychologist by uh, discipline. My training and teaching is in ethics and policy and computer security, so it's a, an odd mix of things. But what I really care about is what happens to people in the middle of their use of technology and their use of computers. So uh, you'll see this kind of blend as, uh, as I talk about my research. I am a retired, as I told uh, Fadibars earlier, I'm a retirement 101 failure. I retired in 2000 and was asked to continue teaching for two of the colleges. So I teach for the School of Public Policy and the School of Information at Michigan. And uh, this semester is the very first semester in 40 years that I have not been working full-time or teaching. So I'm just writing this semester. But I'm writing about the results of this research that we just finished. And so that's the study that I want to talk with you about today. The study is called CFAC, and I'll come back to the kind of play on CFAC, uh, C-I-F-A-C, Computer Incident Factor Analysis and Categorization Project was funded by the National Science Foundation. It was one of three projects uh, that I wrote a couple of years ago, all of which got funded. And so the two, the two of them were related. And this is the larger of, uh, of those two. It's the only study of its kind in that it is a very direct person-to-person -person gathering of data. And I'll talk about the methodology on this because it's very important when we talk about information security incidents and computer-related incidents in general, to think about the methodology. People are not willing to give up information about incidents quite as readily as is needed for good uh, research. So we'll talk about that methodology. And this is a website in case you want to go and see the full report. If I were to say to you, what is a computer incident, um, I'm not actually giving you enough time without putting this up on the screen. But you might be thinking first and foremost about computer security incidents, attacks on systems, for instance. But what we found in doing our research and doing our, our look at the literature and our study of the literature was that people who were defining incidents that narrowly who were looking primarily at systems vulnerabilities were missing a vast array of incidents that were occurring. 
and things that were really taking our time as system administrators and policy people in institutions and organizations. So it was very important not just to be focused on the vulnerabilities of operating systems and the very careful categorizations that have been taking place there, but instead to look more broadly at the kinds of things that were happening on computers and through computers that we can define as computer-related incidents. To that end, we defined in these incidents that we looked at as any action or event that takes place through, on, or involving information technology resources, whether accidental or purposeful, and that's very important, those two uh, distinctions, that has the potential to destabilize, violate, or damage the resources, services, policies, or data of the community or individual members of the community. So you can see it's very broad, but the fact is those are the kinds of things that are happening. They fall within that, that definition. I had in my mind when I started this research that if we could identify a categorization system that could reliably be used by people, it would allow us to communicate across institutions and organizations better and we could begin to do some trend analysis. So we tried a categorization system in this project. Uh, we did some preliminary studies with uh, focus groups and we looked at the category systems that different universities are coming up with as they list all of the incidents that are occurring. And pretty much there is agreement on copyright violations, but beyond that there's not much agreement. When somebody says it's certain kind of an attack, it may not be the same thing that another university is referring to. So we defined just three categories and wanted to test in this research whether or not people could reliably use these categories. Incidents that focus on people, we called people incidents. Those were things like electronic harassment, stalking, incidents where a perpetrator is trying specifically to do something to discredit a specific individual or to get information from that individual. It was very individual focused. We defined systems incidents, are those incidents that were focused on systems. Most of you will think about those pretty readily, I would think. Those are the denial of service attacks, uh, attacks on, on the system viruses and worms, things that are designed to interrupt the system per se. Pretty general definition. And data incidents, which we have been watching for some time, it grow in sophistication and in number. Are incidents where it's not the person that you care about or their specific data, but you're after the data itself. There may be cases where an individual is trying to access the data to change it or to access the data to steal it and use it in some other in environment or just to alter the data to cause the system not to work but the focus of the activity is on the uh, incident. We asked all of our participants when they described incidents to us what the primary focus of the incident was. Was it people, data, or systems? Now I'll tell you right up front that I don't think that we learned a lot from this categorization system and I'll tell you why a little later in the presentation. Um, but it, we, did, we did learn one thing. We learned that defining it like this focus on people, focus on systems, focus on data was not sufficient for us to draw out of our participants the kind of information reliably that we needed. We'll come back to that. So one of the things we really wanted to know is what are the causes of these incidents that are occurring? Um, and we have to ask, are incidents really happening? Or is it just hype? What do you think? You think incidents are happening in corporations and in institutions of higher education, or are they just ankle biters, as I would call the, you know, the variety of things that happen in a, in a population of growing and exploring and experimenting adults? Are incidents, what do you think? You think they're happening? Where do you hear them happening? Anybody? Yes, it's bad. Pretty, pretty much everywhere. Uh, government, industry, and academia all seem to be targeting a whole different kinds of attacks. Well, uh, 
it, that's absolutely true. The interesting hype is that it's mostly academia that is holy and wide open and the incidents are happening here in our colleges and universities. As you'll see, I also gathered and analyzed incidents from corporate and not for corporate environments. And uh, you'll see that there's no difference in the incidents between those environments. We hear that these attacks are costing the nation billions. There's an awful lot of hype about these incidents. That we're losing ground to those who do harm. That cyber fraud is rising by over 20% annually. That 1% of households are victims of phishing expeditions. That the percentage of infected, uh, that a large percent is infected by virus growth uh, up to 10% per month that hosts compromised are less than 30,000 per day. Um, we're hearing a lot of hype. The question is, what is really happening? Well, this is just a brief sample of some of the data access or data vulnerability incidents that have been reported in colleges and universities. April of 05, unspecified unintentional exposure in Florida. Same month, 40,000 at Michigan State. Same month, 106,000 at Tufts. Uh, same month, 19,000 at Carnegie Mellon. Same month, unspecified intentional unauthorized access at Georgia Southern. March of 05, 98,000 intentional theft on a laptop at UC Berkeley. Uh, 98,000 meaning people exposed or data of personal uh, individuals exposed. March, 120,000 intentional unauthorized access uh, at Boston College. And March of 05, 59,000 at Cal State, Chico. And the question is, is that just happening in academia? Of course, what we hear in the news and what we hear from the government is that academics are wide open and this is the source of most of the problems in cyberspace. The reality is we don't hear about it in the corporations because, of course, the bottom line is profits and reputation, and they don't want that information out. But here's a couple of examples to let you know it's happening there, and my, my research is basically showing that the severity and the frequency are not much different in those two environments. June of 05, 40 million, look at the numbers, credit, cards account, credit card accounts exposed, May of 05, 676,000 uh, through an intentional access to, and my spacing isn't good on that slide, sorry about that, but just to show you that we're talking about very large exposures when they happen in the corporate environment. We started uh, this project knowing that we had to have a nationally recognized board of advisors. You'll recognize somebody's name on here, Jean Spafford from Sirius, Purdue. Uh, Sean Butler is from Carnegie Mellon. She's a researcher. Mark Brune is a VP from uh, Indiana. Rob Clark was the past president of the National Association of Auditors because we wanted to look at people in different roles and get their input, not just sysad people or people in information security. Gene Schultz from Hightower Software. Barb Simmons, who is the past president of ACM, has been involved in this research. Jack Seuss from Maryland. Frank Vinnick, who is a senior risk analyst for United Educators, which is the insurance company that insures, uh, helps universities and colleges with their insurance for risk. Rodney Peterson from Educause. Tracy Mitrano from uh, Computer Law and Policy at Cornell University. So these were the people on the advisory board. Great, great folks to give input and direction to this uh, project. The project had a methodology that is very important, and, and I want to spend just a little bit of time on this, because if you ever want to do research on computer incidents or security incidents, you will realize quickly that people are not going to fill out forms when you mail them. They are operating with their hair on fire, and they don't have time to do that kind of response. Research for them is irrelevant, most of the, most of the sysads. They are definitely not going to fill this out over the web because of the security of the web. So how do you get people to talk with you openly about the kinds of things they're struggling with and dealing with? Our uh, methodology is a direct person-to-person -person methodology. 
That means that we felt it was important to sit down person to person in the office of the person to talk about the incidents. And consequently, um, it was a time and people intensive methodology. We used, uh, just as a little side note, we used a piece of software called SPSS Data Entry. Anybody here know that software? It, it's interesting because you can put your whole questionnaire right on your laptop in the software and then sit down with the person and have them describe an incident to you and they describe it in detail and you can uh, take every word verbatim right down on your, on your laptop and then go through your questions and they're all keyed to numerics already. So as soon as you answer, you mark in the answer that they gave you, when I usually burn a CD as backup and then go back home, and we dump it directly into the database and it goes in as numerics. And so you're ready, you don't have to do the translation, you're ready to make sure it's clean data and ready that it can be run. Uh, it, it, there were some bugs in the beginning, but it worked very, very well. Um, with this kind of research, it's very important that we separate the identifiers from the data. And in fact, I destroy those identifiers very rapidly so that I myself don't end up going out to a, a group like you and saying, hey, you know what happened at Purdue? Uh, I don't want to be able to make those connections. And so we destroy those connections right away as soon as we know that the data is running. We were able to involve 36 colleges and universities. We didn't have enough money to do a, to a real random sample. We were able to do clusters, geographic clusters. So we did a West Coast, an East Coast, a Midwest, uh, a Washington, D.C., Virginia area cluster, a Massachusetts cluster, a Texas cluster, and so on. We went to places where we could get enough colleges and universities within relatively easy travel time that it made our flight expenses um, uh, accountable and sustainable. So we were able, in fact, to use clusters as a way of gathering the data. Within those clusters, we used public and private, large and small institutions. And we asked for the person who knows the most about or handles the people incidents as one of the people we wanted to talk with the person who knows the most about or handles the systems incidents. That might be a security person. The person who knows about the most about or handles the data incidents. Often that was an administrative computing person within the colleges and universities. For each of those individuals, uh, and I, won't, I can go into more detail on the methodology if anybody wants to, but I'll, I'll skip that now. For each of those individuals, we asked them to describe three incidents in detail that it happened within the last 12 months. And then we committed them to giving us the next three incidents that occurred after we left. And they did that over the phone. So we basically had retrospective data and current data. And by the way, the analysis showed there was no difference. I was worried that the retrospective data might be the outstanding incidents, you know, the showstoppers, and that the current incidents would be totally different that what they would recall would only be the, the uh, outstanding incidents. But in fact, that was not the case. Statistically, we saw no significant difference. We also then, from colleges and universities, by gutting three approximately from each institution, um, the experts identified by the chief information officer, we then um, had about 92 participants, and from them collected 320 incidents to be analyzed. We did the same at corporate, in the corporate and not-for-profit environments, but they aren't organized the same way that universities are, as you can imagine, so there might only have been one or two people there that would handle all three categories of incidents. Again, we asked for three incidents in detail. We did not ask for current from that group because of the timeline on our, on our project. We were too pressed for time at that point. 42 participants um, occur, uh, uh, were active within the corporate and not-for-profit, adding another 110 incidents. So all told, we had 430 incidents that were analyzed in detail from this data collection. 68 sites, 430 incidents. We asked them to describe the incident, to rate its seriousness on a Likert scale of one, not at all, somewhat two, 
uh, quite three or extremely four, so one to four. We also asked seven prevention questions, which covered 38 variables, and seven cause questions, which covered 35 variables. And we asked two additional questions. How important in this incident was accidental or malicious behavior? Uh, I'm sorry, accidental or... Um, uh, and then uh, uh, accidental or... Hmm, what was the other word? Um, basically, the two questions tried to distinguish between accidents and uh, problems that occurred and malicious in terms of intent. Um, to give you an example of the way the questions were, were listed, we would say something like this in a cause question. In this incident that you've described, how important on a scale of one to four was lack of training and education for A, system administrators as the cause of this incident? And they scored one, two, three, or four. How important as a cause of this incident was lack of training or education for non-IT personnel, for faculty, for students, for system, uh, for uh, administrators, whatever. So there were seven, six, seven, or eight variables in each one of the cause questions, and likewise in each one of the uh, prevention questions. By getting them to actually score their the importance. Of, of, of that variable in causing the incident on a scale of one to four, we were able to get an objective score that we could then uh, begin to cluster and look at uh, in our statistical analysis. We also asked questions about the adequacy of their procedures, and we asked them what, how important were the following items as a stimulus to action when an incident occurred? And in those variables, we asked things like, how important was the type of machine on which this incident occurred as a stimulus to action? How important was the number of people affected? How important was the potential of damage to institutional reputation or the potential of harm to an individual in this incident as a stimulus to action? And at the end, we asked each individual for each incident to recommend the best practice for preventing the incident from occurring in the future, for mitigating the incident, and for managing the incident, so that we could share those best practices with other colleagues. Um, I have uh, up here in the front some examples of, in case you want to pick those up after, of some of the incidents that have occurred. Let me just give you a sample, very brief sample. You don't have those, by the way. I didn't distribute those, but you could pick one up after. Here's one I just opened up. Let's uh, give you an example. Uh, this incident, and these are in the words of the person who actually gave us the incident. We had a student who was able to enter student academic records, trying to prove to the college how insecure the system was. No malicious intent was implied, but he did enter the system and ac accessed records of other students. The student self-reported to an IT technician, but also shared it with a number of friends. Weeks later, the student went back to see if the problem had been fixed, and investigation showed that the student had gone deeper this time than he had originally intended and viewed other students' records. The student also tried to change his own record but was unable to manipulate the data, just view it. The subject called the student into, the, into her office, given the opportunity to acknowledge his transgression or to send it to a community review board. The student was very candid from the beginning, and his admission was pretty much the same as what IT had discovered in their independent investigation. Okay, uh, I, I can go on on that, but you can see that in that kind of an incident, it was an unauthorized a, um, access to data records, and some attempt to manipulate the records. The student was supposedly trying to show uh, how vulnerable the system was, and we do have a number of incidents of that type. Here's another one. We got the MyTub worm into our systems. A contractor was on site. We have a number of incidents where contractors are involved. Um, he went out onto the network to check his email, and he picked up the worm. He was on a machine that was on our network and therefore spread the worm to our machines. 
This was a zero-day outbreak, therefore the antivirus updates were not yet available. This caused our system to participate in the distribution of the worm. He then, we then were blacklisted because the viruses were coming out of our network. Um, we, had, we have a tool that tracks down the IP address and locates the machine. We contacted the contractor and said that uh, you have to turn off your machine and fix it. Our own systems were protected, so it was not a case of infection, but rather the blacklisting of our systems due to this one machine that was sending out infected transactions. So there's another example, again, having to do with an external person coming in and causing that kind of a problem within the systems. Actually, a, cause of, a problem for the university by being blacklisted. Here's another one. Um, a female student reported that some pictures that she had taken of herself um, naked to document her weight loss, which she had stored on her computer, were posted on the web. One of her male housemates had accessed her machine and taken the pictures for posting on his publicly accessible website. Another housemate had heard about it and told the girl. The girl was very clear that this was a violation of her privacy and a theft of property. She wanted to prosecute the act. She discussed the incidents with the ethics project personnel. The IT staff confirmed the existence of the pictures in a publicly accessible site. The student was very clear that she had done nothing to expose the pictures herself or encourage the sharing of the images. The complaint was taken to law enforcement who took the, stu the student very seriously, the student incident very seriously. Male student was confronted and confessed that he had done this and it was settled out of court for a financial sum. Okay, there I've given you a couple that are basically people-focused incidents in that. Let's see if I can grab another one here just... <clears throat> a, uh, an employee was traveling home on a Thursday night and was traveling by train. Some trains were old and he placed his bag in a wire cage above his head and left it there when he left the train. The laptop was encrypted. It contained a full copy of the customer database. Incident was escalated to the group board level immediately. The respondent believed that, his, that most laptop theft is from criminals who will uh, format resell laptops relatively low. However, the impact of any data release is high. Uh, legal department, media, customer relations, business uh, and business folks facing people for that area uh, were very concerned. Eventually, um, we put together a worst possible plan of action. Within core group, we have an encryption program. We began to place encryption on all laptops to prevent any unencrypted laptops left the leaving the business, and so on and so forth. So there's a case of, of an employee um, not taking care of, of the laptop. Now, there's plenty more that we can look at, but I wanted to give you a little bit of a sample of the kind of incidents. There are viruses, uh, there are malicious employee action, actions. Um, you know, one of the worst things that you can have and, and the greatest number of in incidents that occur uh, within our, come from within organizations, not outside of organizations. This malicious employee action one is one where a student was angry about, a student employee was angry about uh, working conditions within their department, uh, went into the server room and dumped their Coke on the server, uh, fried the motherboard, but just dumped the whole thing on and left. Um, so there are a number of different kinds of incidents and they have motivations that are all over the place. So what did we find in all of this? Well, the thing that I want to say uh, about this research, first of all, was not only is it the first time that we've been able to look at in detail uh, incidents from corporate and not-for-profit environments and compare them with the incidents from colleges and universities, but it is the first time that we have had enough incidents in our sample to be able to do factor analysis and a deeper statistical analysis of what we, what we had there in terms of responses. So I was very excited to be able to do uh, factor analysis with this uh, material. And what we do in factor analysis, we're basically asking of all the responses to all these incidents, are there responses that cluster together? Are there things that seem to be factors related to the cause or to the prevention uh, questions that we've asked. And what we found was 
very strong factors that are related to cause ha uh, and prevention. Factors related to preventing incidents were existence of policy, having policies already in place, having them clear and already written out was considered to be a strong factor in preventing incidents from happening. Having training and education, particularly of IT managers, was considered to be a strong factor in preventing the incidents from occurring that we had within this whole set of 430. And having increased availability to access tools, tools that could monitor access and give alerts to when access was occurring, was considered to be a strong prevention factor. I thought it was very interesting that of all of the factors related to prevention and cause, the vast majority were people-focused factors, education, training, policies, and standards. They weren't technical. And one of the things we fall, prone, uh, fall prey to, or we are prone to, is thinking of technical fixes, because we're so immersed in the technology and its in, in innovative applications and so on. We're so enamored by it. But the factors that came out of this deep analysis are not bells and whistles, or more bells and whistles, more technical solutions. There are no silver bullets here. These are primarily people-focused factors. In cause, uh, the strongest cause of these incidents, the factors that accounted for the greatest amount of variance across all of the responses relative to cost, cause were the deficiency in education and training and a lack or deficiency of user requirements requirements for how users are to use your systems and accidental or careless behavior. Notice it's not malicious behavior that was a primary cause factor. Even though the media would like us to believe these, there's a whole horde of people just waiting to get into your systems and we know there's a lot of hitting against our systems. We know that. But the primary causes were accidental and careless behavior causes and lack of education and training. Factors related to IT personnel, they have to have more training and education. They have to have stricter requirements for how to do their jobs. We put lots of personnel in these roles of system administration and the personnel turn over frequently. If that's the case, without checklists and standards for how basic operations are to be done, we are going to have a lot of variance in how those operations are done. And most system administrators don't like to document. They consider it a waste of time. Without documentation, with rapid turnover of personnel and with no standards, you're going to have people forgetting to turn permissions back on, forgetting to turn functions off that need to be turned off, skipping steps, and that's when these accidents and incidents are occurring. That came out very strongly. We need to have stricter requirements for job performance for system administrators and better procedures to protect against accidental behaviors. I've had system administrators who have root access privilege. Say to, I've said to them, how many people have this root access to your primary servers? And the person said to me, this was in one college and university, Persons, or college, I think it was, the person said, everybody in my department has access. And I said, okay, how many people are in your department? Twelve. Well, why would twelve people need root access on the primary servers in, for that college? That is just plain poor practice. That is poor management. And we have not put those kind of, of, of uh, procedures and requirements in place. The statistics are very strong on this, and so it's not just something that I as an educator would willy-nilly say we need more education. This is coming out of the factor analysis. For non-IT staff, the strongest factors related to cause were more security education and awareness training. These are the people 
in the departments that are handling your data as students or your data as personnel employees. More stringent requirements for the use of shared electronic resources and networks. What I saw this time that I haven't seen in previous research is colleges and universities using quarantine zones. If a laptop came back, somebody went on vacation, came back and tried to hook onto the network and it was hit against the standards or the requirements for configuration and it didn't meet the standards that the university had set, that machine is thrown automatically into quarantine and cannot go on the network until it meets the standards. In my view, that's a very, very positive and proactive approach that we need to be taking. There is no reason why any faculty member, just because they got the money, should be allowed to attach unknown devices to the network without the system administrator being fully informed and putting configuration requirements on those. So there's an example. Better knowledge prior to the use of systems. Before we let people start using our data warehouses, they need to have stringent training so that we are avoiding these kinds of errors. And data protection training and responsibility awareness training for our users. The problem with users in colleges and universities is our undergraduates turn over every four years. So it's like a black hole for education. How do you ever put enough security awareness out there? That's a very daunting task, but it is the way we will prevent these incidents from happening. Factors related to the network, the, most, the strongest factors were more automated resources for controlling access. That's the issues of the quarantine zone and, and uh, 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 um, configuration requirements for the networks and for devices more procedures and requirements relative to configuration of software and hardware, and more audit automated detection and response tools. Corporate and not-for-profit environments really need more automated detection and response tools. I would have thought they would have been further ahead than we in colleges and universities. That's not the case. Were corporate and academic results different? This was very surprising to me. I expected they would be very different. What we found was that they were essentially the same in the type of incidents, the seriousness, and the, uh, the problems, the factors related to cause and, and prevention. The, there, of the 81 variables, only 19 of the variables had difference. Otherwise, we would have combined all of the results and said no statistically significant difference. But 19 variables did have some difference. When we analyzed those variables, they were things like how centralized are your IT services? Well, corporations and not-for-profits centralize their services much more than academics. So it wasn't about the incidents. It was about their organizational structure that made them different. It wasn't about the incidents. When we asked about configuration requirements, they are centrally organized, so they decide what the configuration requirements are and push those out to the desktops. It's not like academic environments where we have to try to encourage people to use the configurations. In fact, I would predict that more colleges and universities will be pushing um, configurations out to the desktops uh, as we go forward, just like they're doing quarantine zones. So inspection showed that these are remarkably similar, and I would not have expected it. We, uh, when we asked for recommended best practices for preventing incidents from occurring, our respondents said education, training, and awareness. Having and following strong policies and procedures, of course, patching and debugging systems, you would have expected that, Implementing logging and analysis of logs. It's no good to log and never analyze the logs. It's a waste of time. And a lot of our colleges and universities are logging, but don't have any time to analyze the logs. They don't have the people to do it. And deploying firewalls requiring proper configurations. Best practices for mitigating the effects of incidents once they've occurred. Straightforward communication. Don't hide the incident. Talk about it. Tell the community what's happened and what you're doing to fix it. Take decisive and timely action 
and have interdisciplinary teams established before the incident occurs. You don't have time once an incident occurs to go find the person in the attorney's office of your university who knows something about computers. You don't have time to go find a risk manager who has a clue about sysad administration and systems. You need to have that team already established and deploy automated enforcement tools for standard configuration. That's the, the uh, quarantine zone issue. And the best practices they gave us for managing the incidents were having and following pre-established procedures, having the interdisciplinary team in place, frequent communication, and telling the community that what has happened and what you're doing. When really bad problems have happened in these organizations, it's when somebody tries to hide it, hide the fact that something that there's been a big exposure. And then what happens is 62 people are trying to find out what's going on, why this system is acting this way, what happened. And before you know it, you have multiple incidents happening because people are getting in the works and mucking it up. If you could just tell them right up front there's been an exposure, like the California law, that requires people to be notified. Uh, this is outside the organization. But inside the organization, tell people it's occurred, tell them what you're doing to fix it, and tell them to stay off the system, be patient. Don't try to get in and investigate themselves. The causes are clear. <clears throat> I don't know our time. Somebody might want to tell me. We have five minutes left. Oh, okay, good. We'll go to questions. The, the causes are, are clear. Policies, procedural requirements, and education. These factors are strong. They came out strong. Um, our tendency when we look at education as one of the cause, the lack of education as a cause factor is to say, duh. You know, we're, in, we're academics. What else do you think I'm going to say? Teach, teach, teach. Educate, educate, educate. That's not where this came from. This came from the analysis. Instead, like Nike, I think we should just say, just do it. We know education is what needs to happen. We know our system administrators often are faculty members or secretaries or students or a staff member who has an interest in computers. No further training than that. That is insufficient for the, the quality and the quantity of networks we're now operating. Um, just a, a couple of comments. We, uh, the quarantine zones, I said, are happening. I think that's a very positive step for academia. Um, the categorization system, I don't think, provided us much of anything in this research. And I'll tell you why. As we went back and analyzed how people were categorizing, when we'd say to somebody who had given us an incident, is this a people systems or data incident? We saw two types of response. Our way of thinking of it was, what was the motivation of the perpetrator? Were they after a person, after a system, or after data? That's what we, we were thinking about, the front end of this uh, motivation. Many of our respondents were thinking response. And so they would say in their heads, the first thing I have to do is fix the system XYZ part. They were thinking about what this incident was going to mean to them. And if it was a systems fix that had to be put in place, they called it a systems incident. Even though the motivation might have been to get at a person, they saw it as a breach in their system. And so there, there were two different responses happening. That says to me that there wasn't reliable use of this, and we need to do better clarification if we're going to try to have a categorization system. The other thing that is very important is corporations and not-for-profits use their risk managers and auditors. They get them right in there looking at what's happening in their IT systems and whether their IT systems are following policies. Colleges and universities primarily relegate the auditors to financial operations. They aren't using them to track whether our policies are being followed, whether we are in fact setting standards and operating according to those standards. 
I think and have recommended for a long time that we don't allow people to be system administrators until they have followed a certification path, until they've been trained, and until they are uh, adequately supervised. Um, the certification is a mixed bag because there aren't very good programs right now or they're extraordinarily expensive for certifying people to do system administration. We have to come up with a better solution there. Eleanor Roosevelt said, learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them yourself. And I would say that we now have enough information about these incidents that we can learn from them and we know what we need to do. We need to put standards in place and we need to train and educate. So um, I'm pretty excited by the way that came out and I, I would be happy to answer any questions that you have. I hope you have some. Any questions about that research or the findings or the methodology? If you ask a question, be sure to uh, press the microphone button so it's picked up on the, the tape. Um, I'll make two observations. The first is that uh, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse announced in December that in 2005-2006 combined, the discovered and announced disclosures of personal information in the U.S amounted to over a hundred million records worth. So indeed there are incidents occurring everywhere. Uh, that was across government, industry, and academia. And, and that's a lot. That's one out of every, one out of every three of us. Um, uh, or some unlucky people are getting multiple times of exposure. Uh, the, the, the second comment is in academia one of the difficulties is the funding agencies will not allow us to budget for professional system administrators on research budgets. And so we have to settle for uh, individuals who are perhaps not as well trained. And uh, have you uh, had an opportunity to present this to, say, people at NSF? Uh, Actually, I, have, in mind? I haven't presented these. Uh, well, they have them in their hands right now, but we haven't, I haven't presented. But prior to doing this study, um, the uh, vice president of EDUCAUSE and I went to NSF and talked about the importance of coming up with a grant to provide certification training for system administrators. Um, we didn't have these data at that time, and uh, it felt uh, too common to them. They didn't, they didn't get it, basically. Um, and so I decided not to waste my time with that, but to write this grant instead. And um, so now we have some data that we can go back to them if, uh, if anybody wants to do that kind of a grant. I want to go back to one of the things Jean just said about personal information. One of the things that's happening that we as individuals need to be really cognizant of is corporations and businesses are, in banks, are the ones that are in fact having vulnerabilities and releases of data. But what they do is turn that around and require more data from us as a way of trying to secure. In other words, it's not enough to give your name. It's not enough to use your PIN. It's not enough to give your mother's maiden name. They're asking for more and more and more pieces of personal information, as if one more piece was going to verify your identity and secure your data even a little more. The reality is we need to be pushing back and saying to them, if we give you this information, you are obliged to secure it. And if there's a break, we are holding you liable. Because as long as they can just throw that back on us as individuals, we'll never have enough of a class action activity to make any, any, uh, any uh, response. We'll just have to keep giving our, our data. It isn't about us. It is about us giving information to people whose systems are in fact, not secure. Just before coming, uh, maybe last night, I, and it's somewhat related, and I'll just uh, say this quickly. If any of you have these loyalty cards for, from your grocery stores or your pharmacies, how many of you in the room have a loyalty card? Okay. Well, let, let me tell you about what they just released last night. The loyalty cards are now being sold the, the list, the database lists are being sold to insurance companies from the pharmacies 
so that the insurance companies can tell the medicine that you are taking. Not only are they in then using that list to mail you information about like drugs or some other drug that is similar, but they are also using that information to adjust insurance rates for the first time. And so there's an example. Pharmacies that are given your personal information should be held accountable to securing and not using that information for any secondary purpose. And until we hold them accountable, we are going to have these breaches over and over for these very reasons. They are not trained. There are no standards. They're not holding to the standards of information, privacy, or security. And we need to take a stronger stand as individuals on that. Other questions or comments? That's why I get all my cards in Chris's name. Oh, I have my own several names. Loyalty cards, the name and addresses tend not to match anything recognizable to me. You can also just point blank say I'm not giving you any of this personal information and I expect to get the same discounts. And they will give you yes. a card with no information being given and you will get the discount. But you've got to stand up to it. And then they can then link it to your credit card information as soon as you use it. If you use a credit card. I use cash, actually. <laughs> Else? Any comments or questions? All right. There are some handouts on the way out that you may want to pick up. There's a copy, a few copies of the, a few of the incidents and a few copies of the instrument itself if any of you are interested in the incident. Let's thank uh, Dr. Rizmerski. Thanks for your time.